From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. The best way to support the show is by booking a Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Disney Cruise Line, or Adventures by Disney Vacation with Dreams Unlimited Travel. Get a free, no-obligation quote today for your next dream vacation at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 270 of Connecting with Walt. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my good friend, Mary Jo Mulatto Willie. Mary Jo, how are you today? I'm doing peachy, Michael. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you. Just we were enjoying some lovely fall weather up here. And the leaves are turning, and now it's going to be 90 degrees again. Yeah, are we getting the Santa Ana winds? Is that what's happening? I didn't... We don't get the Santa Ana winds up here. Okay. We get delta breezes, and we get other other things. Okay. Yeah, because it's... This year, we didn't have that heat wave that we typically get in in September Mm -hmm. and stuff. So we've been enjoying, I've been enjoying the the cooler weather. And then this week, like you said, it's going to be hot. It's getting into the 90s in a couple of days. So Yeah, yeah, same here too. So, oh, well, (laughs) it's still pleasant at night. So Yes. That's one thing about California. And, you know, when um, we always say, bring a sweater because when the sun goes down, it gets kind of cool. It does sometimes. Yeah. So it definitely is right now. Mm-hmm. So now in this episode, we are continuing our series on the making of Walt Disney's Bambi. In our previous episode, I shared how the platinum edition of Bambi contained a special feature in which voice actors reenact storyboard meetings for Bambi. But A couple of listeners, Mark and Sean, um, sent me separate messages letting me know that this feature is available on Disney Plus under the extras for Bambi. So that's what I get for assuming. (laughs) Oh, but I'm so glad that they they messaged you, Michael, Mm because it sounds so interesting when you were talking about it last time that um, I was really tempted to... uh, go online and purchase that platinum edition. No, it's there and it is well worth the listen. So anyone who subscribes to Disney plus you can virtually sit in on these storybook meetings. And some of what we talked about last week and this week, when you listen to it, will sound familiar to you because you know, a lot of what they talked about made it into the film and those, but it was, it's just interesting to hear their thought process, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's really good. So now if you viewed Walt Disney's Bambi, you know, the dialogue is used very sparingly and music tells much of the story and gives voice to the nature in the film. So every afternoon at 4 p.m. during this time when Bambi was in development, Walt met with conductor Leopold Stokowski and music critic and composer Deems Taylor to talk about the classical pieces of music that would fit into Fantasia. 
Wald wanted to learn more about the history of the music they selected and the stories about the composers. This depth of music and film was new to Walt. He had used mood music in his Silly Symphony series, but it had always been played by a small group of musicians. Now Walt was becoming knowledgeable about orchestra works and the effect they could have on a film. Walt had been successful with injecting humor into his films, and he was apprehensive about using serious musical pieces. So Walt approached Frank Churchill to write some songs, similar to what he had done for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Churchill's soundtrack for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, featuring the classics Hi-Ho and Whistle While You Work, had been enormously successful. It was the first soundtrack to have been released on vinyl records. He had also written Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf for the 1933 animated short Three Little Pigs. So Churchill had a talent for writing simple melodic tunes that felt light and timeless. Whilst working on Fantasia, Walt was learning more about music and how it could be used to create mental images and subtly manipulate listeners. This caused him to realize the potential for the music in Bambi. However, Walt was so focused on Fantasia that he did not have the time to start work on the music. Perce Pierce continued to create drawings and story sketches for the film. His goal was to uncover every possible way of telling the story and staging it to capture the beauty, intimacy, and grandeur the story called for. He would act out the various animals and ad-lib dialogue for the other artists before heading back into his office to draw. His ad-libs were so good, some were included in the final film. Mm. The team was so impressed with this acting and ad-libs for the little mole that comes out at this bur- at the, out of his burrow at Bambi's feet that Pierce recorded the mole's dialogue for the film. I think he just says, good morning, little prince, or something like that. Towards the end... I'm picturing the scene in my mind right now. That is so cool. Yeah, I am too. It's funny how how things happen where right fortuitous and then you get selected and all that. It's, it's neat. Towards the end of 1938, the artists and story team at the Seward street studio were becoming restless. Walt had given them a lot of latitude in exploring how the story of Bambi would be told. But with Walt busy on other projects, they were concerned if the film would ever be made and if they would ever be incorporated into the main Hyperion studio again. So they drew caricatures of each other as members of the French (laughs) Foreign Legion assigned to an isolated desert outpost. By this time, a lot of progress had been made with the film. Many voice actors had been selected for the characters. There were new scripts along with new sketches to illustrate the scripts. Walls were covered with displays of paintings and drawings of the deep woods and majestic forests. There were drawings of animals, model sheets, um, suggested layouts, backgrounds, and piles of storyboards all ready for Walt's review. But Walt didn't come. Walt was still exploring the potential of mixing classical music with animation. 
Walt also felt unsure as to how to get the audience involvement he believed was so necessary to the success of Bambi. So he didn't want to rush Bambi into production till this was sorted out. So Bambi was pushed back and Fantasia was put on the schedule as the studio's third animated feature film. By 1939, the final decisions had been made on musical pieces for Fantasia, and Walt turned his attention once again to Bambi to see what work had been done with the story, the research, and the art. Rather than sitting through days of meetings, Walt wanted to see it all on a film as a story reel. No one had expected this. So many ideas had been conceived that Pierce Pierce and Larry Morey had planned to present each one in a conference. It was decided that supervising director Dave Hand should be moved to the Seward Street studio to help with the decision-making. He was well-respected and admired, but his decision-making style would come as a shock to the artist who had become accustomed to a relaxed way of working. That's kind of what happens when the boss is gone, right? For, mm-hmm. I mean, Walt Walt is uh, is a dynamo in, in itself. So, not having him in the studio and the guys just kind of um, plugging along without that real drive, you know, or the schedules of let's get this done. I bet that was kind of a culture shock for them. It was, and, and you know, they really didn't have the direction that they needed. So. Um, and yeah, I, so, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Um, what I was going to say, so they were, they, they kind of thought that they would still be discussing the storyline with Walt, right? But what I think you just said was he expected kind of like what we would call a trailer. Is is that what he, he was, is that right. what was he was expecting? Yeah, he oh, wanted wow. a long okay. he wanted a story reel with all their ideas and concepts and art so that he could view it. So. I had never heard of that before. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, it was Walt. He had his own way <laughs> of doing things. Yeah. <laughs> so, so by April by April though, 20 minutes of footage was ready for Walt's review. But Pierce first wanted to run it by someone a bit less critical in the decision-making process, so they would have a chance to make corrections before showing it to Walt. He chose to screen it for the studio's art instructors, Don Graham and Rico Lebrun. They provided their observations after the screening, with their focus being on how to incorporate grace, poetry and fantasy into the realistic looking animals whilst making them believable to the audience. In a few weeks, the first third of the film was ready to be shown to Walt, the story men, the directors, and the three supervising animators who were Milt Call, Frank Thomas, and Eric Larson. And those three were especially anxious to see the work that had been done on this project that had been kept so secret. This screening contained most of the originally planned sequences with the babbling brook, a lengthy squirrel and chipmunk scene, Bambi's mother taking him around the forest and teaching him to talk, and Mr. and Mrs. Hare were the important members of the rabbit clan with Thumper just a minor character in the large rabbit family. 
Carl, Thomas, and Larson felt the little animals were excessively cute with bland actions and dialogue that would have been better for a Silly Symphonies cartoon short. But there was something that shocked them. Bambi's mother. They asked. Mm. <laughs> yeah, they, they asked. <laughs> what kind of cartoon is this? The mother gets shot? You can't do that. They were stunned by the harsh drama and lack of entertainment. Yeah, this story was such a secret, right? And they had no idea what to expect. They were probably just expecting something, you know, I mean, Snow White did have its dark moments, but it was pretty much a light, you know, a lot of singing and happy-go-lucky with a good ending. And then this is tragic. So I can imagine they're like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and has had death ever been animated before, you know, in a cartoon? Right. Because we will talk about the different ideas that were floated for how to depict um, Bambi's mother's death. And oh. so we'll talk about that next time because there were um, there's some conflicting thoughts on that. Oh, that'll be interesting. Yeah. To call Thomas and Larson, the death seemed out of place because Bambi's mother had not been established as a sympathetic, caring character, and the constant danger the animals lived in was not convincing. As a result, the death of the mother seemed like an unfortunate occurrence in Bambi's life. However, they did not as yet understand how this could be corrected. They were too confused to say anything of the story and character development possibilities. They could only talk about what they did not like. However, Walton learned a lot in the two years since the release of Snow White, and he took a positive view of what needed to be done. He suggested adding more human touches in the deer to capture actions and emotions the audience would recognize. Said Walt, I think you can humanize them almost to the point that you humanized Figaro. The next evening, there was a second screening for all the studio artists and a questionnaire was distributed afterwards. It showed that the most popular character was the broadly caricatured skunk. There is the key to the thing, said Walt. The lowest rated scene was the long walk around through the forest with Bambi and his mother. From the beginning, Walt thought this was the way to begin the film, but it failed to excite his staff. As a result, Walt called for more entertaining scenes, stronger characters, and better staging. He instructed them to do more caricatures of the animals instead of too straight. The bucks running and leaping through the meadow also received low ratings. Walt disagreed and saw this as a colorful, impressive scene that could be built up instead of cut. He wanted more powerful drawings and staging that would show the power and grace of these magnificent animals. Walt walked them through the scene, describing how there should be a close-up of Bambi's face watching them in awe, then cut to a long shot as he starts to follow the bucks, then turns into a panic as they come towards him, then they leap over his head as their shadows fall on Bambi's, Bambi's huddled body. Walt said, cute stuff is swell, but you've got to give them a little punch every once in a while. After that was seeing, such an impactful scene, you know. Mm-hmm. 
What what I, impressed me was how everybody, you know, only saw the negative, but Walt was able to find the positive. Right. And, and also ideas for how to, you know, build on the positives and, you know, then improve the negatives. I just, every time we hear these um, instances where he explains his vision, it just, it just reminds, at least it reminds me just, just with a visionary and and the true talent that that he had in in how to express the story that was in his mind. Yeah, I agree. And and when you think of that, you know, he really didn't have any formal training. He was self taught in everything. He wow. had this natural, just this natural ability and insight into how to create a story. Yeah, and then and how to. Not only explain it to the animators, but how to make them enthusiastic about bringing that vision to life. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's, is amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a leader who can instill the enthusiasm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. After seeing the film and story sketches, many animators did not want to work on Bambi because the story seemed slow and lacked entertainment. But most could not have done the delicate work needed for the film. Walt had planned to assign more of his key personnel to Bambi, but decided to assign them to the more caricatured personalities for Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan. Walt believed Milk Call, Frank Thomas, and Eric Larson could capture the fine points of the characters in Bambi. Walt continued to examine how music could provide eloquence to Bambi. In a meeting, he said, this is a picture for music, too. This Bambi, it's a natural for it. More than just background music, the whole winter thing, all music, the whole damn hunt music. <laughs> Instead of so many sound effects like the fire and everything, do it all with music. I think you ought to see what happens to some of that music in Fantasia he was referring to when we put action to it. As yeah, the, his animators hadn't hadn't seen like he had, right? Because he's working on all these different projects and he saw how the music could be illustrated by animation. And it seems to me that that the animators today or at the time that he was talking to them had no idea what they were about to experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, and they hadn't been involved in Bam in Fantasia mm-hmm. much. And Walt had really been educating himself, uh, as I mentioned, on the music and how it could be utilized to, you know, to um, trigger people's emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as Walt was working on his plan for future films, he analyzed how best to use his staff, which now numbered 1,200. He didn't want to rush assigning people to Bambi. He left it to his three supervising animators to do the experimental work, find the right drawings and personalities and and the actions of the animals. And when they were ready, they could bring on other animators, one at a time as needed. Walt suggested a few animators who, quote, had the stuff, unquote, and many were coming along. Walt had been impressed with Ollie Johnston's animation of Pinocchio and made him the fourth supervising animator on Bambi. And this is a rare case where Walt actually stopped Ollie in the hallway and told him he was impressed with his. Oh, work. wow. That rarely. He didn't happened. get a, a that'll do. <laughs> yeah, no, no, apparently not. So, 
As Eric Thomas and Ollie Johnston were finishing up their work on Fantasia, Milt Call and Frank Thomas started working on the experimental animation that would prove if the animators were skilled enough to create a feature film about a deer in a forest. Call and Thomas had two different philosophies about animation. Call always made clear realistic, beautiful, well-organized drawings. Thomas was more interested in the inner feelings of the characters, and drawing was the means to communicate his ideas. Through his work, Thomas could reveal the depth of his characters' personalities. Thomas insisted that acting came first, whilst Call would say, if the drawing is good, there is no need for acting. Despite these differences in animation approaches, Walt said, Call and Thomas working together make a good team. This is one of those instances we always hear about where Walt combined people who were opposites because mm-hmm. he saw the potential of that. And, and this is a good example of that. And they had to respect each other's work, right? Because they, they had such uh, distinct opinions on, on what should be depicted, yet they listened to each other because it wouldn't have worked if they hadn't. Yeah. Although, you know, Call was very highly regarded as, you know, one of the top animators. And he felt it was just because he worked harder than everybody else. Mm-hmm. And the reason people weren't as good as he is is because they didn't work as hard. So so he could be a little uh, direct. Sometimes. Yeah, I guess so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, but his talent, you know, you, you can't argue he wasn't incredibly talented. You tell these stories and I just think what an exciting time to be at the studio because they were inventing, literally inventing the, the art that they were creating. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because no one else, other studios after Snow White were starting to make animated feature films, but none were like, um, none were like Disney. I mean, Disney was the place to be. Oh, if yeah. If you were an artist or an animator during this era. So yeah, anyway, like the Fleischer, you know, like the Fleischer Film Studio, they quickly did a Gulliver's Travels, a full length one. It used to appear, used to be broadcast when I was a boy, like around Christmas time every year. Oh, but, every year was an annual. I used to love yeah. that. Yeah, uh, but you could see there was a stiffness. They used rotoscoping mm-hmm. and then animated the uh, and animated the lips, and you could just see the stiffness. There was nothing natural about it. It lacked heart. And the Disney studio didn't use rotoscoping. They used, um, they had models that they would sit and draw or they would film them in order to watch them as they did their drawings to see like, how did the fabric flow on the, on the costume, the dress? How did they move their hands, you know, when they spoke or moved, you know, they looked for things like that, but they didn't copy it. So like, um, like Fleischer and other studios did. Right. Oh no, there's such a difference in the, in the quality of the art in, in both those animated features. Mm-hmm. And, and I agree with you, Gulliver's, I don't even know if Gulliver's Travels was ever in the theater. If it was, it must've been for a short oh, time. It, it but, was, but it was around the time of Snow White. Okay. But even then Snow White just outclassed it in animation. And then by the mm-hmm. time they get to Bambi, what you're describing to everybody and the work that, that went in there. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm just, you know, 
kind of at a, at a which is shocking at a loss for words. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is amazing what animators mm-hmm. do today, what they go through, what they study in, in order to create, you know, something that's beautiful on the screen. It's also believable. Right. Now, Walt expressed concern as to how the animators would handle the mouths of the animals as they spoke. How would they be able to draw the lip and jaw movements to form the words without making their long, narrow muzzles appearing soft and rubbery? Walt also disliked, quote, poetic lines of dialogue. He wanted direct, honest dialogue that reflected the personality of the speaker so it sounded natural and entertaining. Colin Thomas knew they had to get the animation started as soon as possible. This would not only show how much of a problem there was with the character's mouth speaking, but it would begin to define each character. Walt had said, we found that out on Pinocchio. You don't find your characters until you begin to do a little animation on them. All of the animators had positive comments about the young voice actor for Thumper, four-year-old Peter Ben, who had first tested for the role in November of 1938. However, his distinctive voice was not what Pierce and his staff were looking for. The director of the recording session had said, get that kid out of here. He can't act. But when the animators heard the voice, they were overjoyed and insisted Ben be hired for the role. Animators now saw how the role of Thumper could be expanded to solve a few of the film's problems. Since the beginning, Bambi's mother had been the one to walk Bambi around the forest, introduce him to their animal friends, and teach him to talk. It was a charming and peaceful scene, but boring. It had suggested that Bambi could be walked around the forest by bunnies as he watches the birds sing. Now the first part of the film was transformed to be about delightful children who happen to be animals. The problem as to how to make adult characters convincing and interesting was no longer an issue because they were now supporting players, reacting to the innocent and intriguing personalities of the younger animals. The problems with animating their mouths was no longer important because what they said was more important than how they said it. Now the animators had something they could animate, and they had entertainment that the whole world understood. So they also felt that with the personalities and the voice acting and the dialogue being so entertaining, people wouldn't even look at the mouths of the characters. So it was unimportant. It's it's just how it all comes together and how the voice acting and, and the potential dialogue changes with the, the storyline and how the animators animate that. That's just, again, like I said, it's what a time to be at the Walt Disney studios yeah. and, and to have the freedom for that creativity. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And, and Walt, you know, he, he encouraged that to be mm-hmm. creative because you never know where a good idea will come from. Right. And, and I guess that's why you don't rush, you know, because we think, God, these stories take so long. But if they rush through it, we, we would be missing out on these critical scenes that, that make the movie. 
mm-hmm. because it, Bambi walking with his mother, although that might be sweet, is nothing like having the bunnies and and Thumper's enthusiasm and and childlike wonder. I guess that Bambi has. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm imagining the whole thing as you're describing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you're living it. I can hear the birds as yeah, you're walking through your forest, and I assume you're surrounded by little bunnies there. Yeah, I I am. They're all around. They're quieter than the birds. (laughs) Well, Thumper's sincere and entertaining personality made him a hit with the animators. During a story discussion of the big sweep through the forest by hunters, Pierce presented the notion of Mr. Hare being the one who dies. Sidney Franklin then suggested, and brace yourself, why don't we kill Thumper? Since Thumper and Bambi had been friends as children, this would be a more powerful scene. Oh my gosh, how heartless. Well, Dave Hand was very enthusiastic about this idea and brought it up at each story meeting. Eventually, Thumper was saved when it was decided that Bambi was obviously the one who should be shot. So you can see they're going through a lot of ideas here. By the end of the year, Walt's confidence in the project had made a huge difference. The babbling brook was now gone, as was the comedic duo of the squirrel and chipmunk, although we do get a glimpse of them in the beginning when the little chipmunk is pulling up the tail of the squirrel so he could go to sleep. Right. But there were some sensitive scenes that disturbed the animators. One was the two leaves who discussed what comes after death and the two winds, which are now part of the romance shared by Feline and Bambi, and the realistic footage of deer running through the forest, and two of Walt's favorite scenes, the animals talking about man and the charred forest where Bambi learns that man is not all-powerful and can die. Another problem was how to convey to audiences the great stag was thinking great thoughts about courage and wisdom. He could not look like he was thinking. Animators could not just put a sparkle in his eye. They finally decided to make him a strong, silent man of action, that that would be best. He would sound the alarm when danger approached and lead his herd to safety. So through these actions, he became stronger by saying less. Yeah, he didn't need to talk. Mm-hmm. Just the way they animated him. And, and it, it, that's true. Every time they show him, I mean, from the beginning, right, when the stags are running and Bambi kind of cringes because they're so awe-inspiring. And then when he does talk to him, he just says one or two words. and And that's enough. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of critics say, well, you know, he was an absentee father and all that, but he he was watching over the whole herd and they, they showed how he was strong and keeping an eye on everything yeah, that was going on. I think if he had been more present, that is that is against the nature of deer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Now, the animators were startled by Reddit's Scotch sketches of the vicious dogs chasing Feline and cornering her on a high ledge. They were wondering who could have drawn these terrifying and viral sketches and thought it, or virile sketches, and thought it could only have been created by some burly bearded man. They were quite surprised to discover they had been drawn by a cheerful young woman with twinkling eyes. 
when it was time to animate the sequence, there was no question that she had to be the one to do it. Larson set up the scenes and showed her how to do it. But Larson would say that he worked with her on timing, but that Retta did it all. And together they created one of the most chilling and exciting action scenes ever animated. And it it was used in other films too, like Fox and the Hound and stuff. They used her, her animation as a model for that. But, and you know, this might sound like, oh yeah, women did it. Think back. This is the 1940s. Women were not animators back then, but because Walt and his team saw she was the best one to do it, they gave her the job. And again, she had to be kind of a dynamic person Mm -hmm. to even put her art out there. Right. Because it wasn't, uh, it was, it was a, a man's world, which was everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then for her to to draw and for them to recognize that says a lot about her talent. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And really, I said 1940s. This is the late 1930s. Yeah, really. that's even. But, but mm-hmm. women had important roles at the Walt Disney Studio, you know, even during this time. So. Now, many of the backgrounds being created at this time were very detailed, looking almost like photographs. This caused a problem of the deer looking flat against such detailed paintings. The deer looked like book illustrations with a bit of shading to give the illusion of being solid to define their shape and to help show their emotions. But how could this be created in animation? Animators could not use shading. Everything had to be done in a line and backed up with a single color of paint. How could the animated deer be balanced against a background of leaves and twigs? The answer came from an innovative artist, Tyrus Wong. Wong had emigrated from China with his father when he was nine years old. For a few months in 1938, Wong had worked as an in-betweener at the studio, drawing the series of sketches that would take a character from one pose to the next. But he found it to be boring, tedious work and was soon exhausted. When he heard that the studio was working on a story about the dear Bambi and that it would involve landscapes, he got excited since he was an experienced landscape painter and read Felix Salton's book. So Walt created a series of drawings and watercolors for the films on his own time after he finished his regular work at the studio. But when he saw this, uh, and he first showed this, um, his work to the film's art director, Tom Codrick. And Codrick had a realistic painting style like most people at the studio, but when he saw the soft-edged East Asian paintings of a mystical forest, he knew this was what was needed to make Bambi a different and artistic film. So rather than the detailed backgrounds that showed every detail of flowers, broken branches, and fallen logs, Wong's style was characterized by simplicity, saying more with less. He kept his drawing simple to create an atmosphere and feeling of the forest. His grasses were shadowy with just a few streaks of actual blades of grass. His thickets were soft suggestions of deep woods and patches of light that brought out the detail of a tree trunk or log. Groups of trees were drawn as a silhouette against the early morning mists of the meadow. When Walt saw Wong's work, he was enthusiastic and said, I like that indefinite effect in the background. 
It's effective. I like it better than a bunch of junk behind them. Wong created painting after painting, setting the color schemes along with the appearance of the forest. The impact of Wong's aesthetic was also augmented using the multiplane camera, which layers of images on sheets of glass are used to provide depth. There are very few films where the entire look was created by one artist. Wong was able to capture the beauty and poetry of Felix Salton's work through his paintings. And I think this is what makes uh, Bambi so gorgeous. Oh, yes. It is Tyrus Wong's work in, in the backgrounds and 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 his style and i got a ch- i've had a chance to meet him i'd seen him talk at the walt disney family museum several times he lived to be 106 so i don't know if it oh was my when- gosh yeah i know amazing and i i don't know uh, i think maybe when he was 100 101 or so i was i i was uh look i was at the i was at the museum and i was looking at uh the Bambi section and the Pinocchio section. Although I was at the Bambi section looking at the artwork. Um, there was a reason I was doing it too. I don't remember. I was working on something. And Wong walks up, stands next to me, and he's with his daughters and he's with one of the handlers at the museum. And so I realized, oh my gosh. And so I'm just looking at it. And then he just starts talking to me. Starts telling me about how he created that work that's now on display at the museum and all that. He was such a charming man, sharp as a tack. You know, at 101, he had all his faculties there. And um, it was just, and I was like speechless. Michael, what an experience to actually have Tyrus Wrong talking to you about, and you're standing in front of the work that he did and he's talking about it. Yeah, yeah, it was remarkable. You know, it didn't last long, but it was remarkable. And, you know, just just an experience, you know, I'll always remember. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine. Wow. That was special. It was. It really was. So even though there were still some concerning scenes that needed to be worked out, Carl and Thomas were eager to get started. At the end of 1939, they were the first two artists to move to Walt Disney's new animation building at the Burbank studio. They arrived on the same day the air conditioning units were delivered. <laughs> Until they were installed, Carl and Thomas worked in temperatures reaching 115 degrees. And then in the beginning of the next year, near freezing temperatures as the air conditioning units were installed and tested. Their first drawings of Bambi showed him as either a roast piglet with an apple in his mouth (laughs) or frozen in a square of ice. (laughs) I always love how they, they get out their um, emotions and thoughts and through fun drawings that they do. So, yeah. (laughs) Now they carefully studied the mounds of research materials, sketches and the drawings of comparative anatomy This advanced work was now paying off. The animators now had the time to concentrate on timing, movements, acting, and a feeling of life. The atmosphere of the studio was exciting. Pinocchio would be released to theaters in a couple of months. Work was well underway on Fantasia. Bambi would soon be in the animation phase of production, and everyone would shortly be together in a new Burbank studio. 
This positive outlook would be changed after the Nazi blitzkrieg of 1939 that altered the fortunes of the studio. And that is where we'll pick up our story next time. Wow. Yes, they're going to go from their highs to their lows, (laughs) as people know. Yeah, well, it's going to be, again, a a huge um, change for them and and further challenge. Well, I'm not even going to ask you questions because we'll find out the next time you you tell us more on the story. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know any of this, so I'm just listening to to everything unfold as you're talking about and it's just fascinating Mm -hmm. it is that's one of the fun things about doing this show is you know really digging in and finding all those stories behind you know the things we enjoy so much from disney whether it's the films or the uh you know television series or you know the theme parks yeah on in there i mean there's so many stories Especially during Walt's time, because afterwards the stories, you know, the, people didn't keep track of them as much um, after Walt passed. So yeah, which, I mean, there's still a lot of stories after he passed, oh, yeah. but I think these stories, because it's it's all at the beginning, the fact that they did um, capture them so that we can benefit from them and it, it amazes me anything disney is every time um i turn a corner every time we visit or there's always something new to learn about either the man the art the parks um just talk about um a rich contribution to to all of us mm-hmm. i agree those are the things we need to keep in mind even if we we may disagree with the direction the company's going in now. Yeah. You have to keep all that other stuff in mind. It's funny, a friend, I may have shared this on the show before a friend, um, you know, the shows hit 10 years since we first started connecting with Walt no longer now. Has and it been 10 years already? It has. Yeah, it has. Wow. <laughs> um, but it, it, uh, yeah, he said, well, haven't you told all the stories there are to tell? <laughs> I said, Oh no, we're, we're just getting started <laughs> with them. So. Yeah, there's just so much. Mm-hmm. There is. There really is. But now it's time for this week in Disney history. Uh, Mary Jo, would you like to go first this time as our um, guest host? Um, as a matter of fact, I would. So thank you. You're always so kind to let me go first, but you know, um, I did find a few of them. But this time, I'm going to pick 1963, um, October 7th, and because it's this particular fact has impacted, I think everybody who has been to any Disney park. So this says that a a piano guide track is recorded for the Sherman Brothers song, It's a Small World, which is to be used in the upcoming World's Fair in New York. This piano track played in strict tempo to a metronome click, along with the written melody signs and line and lyrics, will be copied and sent to Italy, Japan, and Mexico, where the lyrics will be translated and children will be recorded singing It's a Small World in their native language. And for those of us who have been on It's a Small World and you and really listen, you can hear mm-hmm. the you can hear the different languages as they sing this song. And 
it's I'm I, I think people like to kid when they complain about it, but I really do love this song and I love the message that the Sherman Brothers um, are spreading with the song itself and the fact that they actually were singing in the in the native languages. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I know it's um, it's certainly a, a the meaning certainly is is most important today mm-hmm. in our in our divided world. Yeah, and yeah. it's just you know the the hope that these these children bring with all their with all their songs and mm-hmm. I'm sorry um, with their voices and and the lyrics to the song. So yeah, th- yeah I I think it's a, an important enough uh, event that that warrants being mentioned. I agree. And I also like the fact that, you know, the children's voices are really pure. They're not, you know, they don't sound professional. They sound like children. Right. Which I really enjoy. I I can imagine a a children's, you know, school choir singing these songs. And Mm -hmm. like you said, they're pure. And I remember in sixth grade, um, sorry for the birds. I remember in six, they want to sing to, it's a small world, small world. That's what it is. <laughs> um, although the song I sing to them is, uh, let's all sing like the birdies sing. I sing that song to them all the time. But um, for, for this one, I remember in sixth grade, uh, one of my schoolmates played It's a Small World on his accordion. So I always remember him playing his accordion and singing It's a Small World in our sixth grade class every time I go to to Disneyland and go to on that attraction. So just just thinking just um it's not it, it maybe because I think it's far reaching, you know, that that people know it and sing it and, and learn to play it and stuff like that. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I wanted, that's great. My father-in-law, Carol's dad, he played the uh, accordion when I really, he, yeah, and then he dragged it out <laughs> again when our children were playing clarinet and trombone, and uh, and so what they would do is they would do little Christmas recitals when the family got together. We'd always tell them that is cool Christmas songs, and they would do that in school anyway. And, and so then he got inspired. So they would do it for the whole family. And they, they were wonderful. They're, they're, they were way too harsh on themselves. It was just delightful. And then, uh, and the family loved it. And then, so my father-in-law brought out his, uh, his accordion and he, cause he, he was very good. He was very gifted at it. And he, that he even would make songbooks. He'd work with my kids and he would, they, they would, you know, they'd play some things together and then he would do his solos. But what I remember is, and, and he did a lot of the old folk songs where sometimes I was one of the only ones who knew them. And then, um, but he then knew the song from uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Oh my and, gosh. The, and I was the only one in the room that knew that. And oh my gosh, that just made him so happy. I was going to say, he must have been so pleased when you knew that song. Yeah, yeah. And I was surprised he knew it. But I think it was one of those songs that, you know, when it got to, when the film came out and it was a hit, it was one of those that was, was released and performed by other people. And that's how he then learned about it. So, yeah. What a cool tradition, though. It was. It was a lot of fun. Very happy memories of all that. So, 
Well, mine actually relates to the topic of these last couple of episodes. October 8th, 1945, Felix Salton, who, of course, as we talked about, wrote Bambi, and he wrote The Hound of Florence and other books. He passed away in Zurich, Switzerland. And as we were talking about last week, Bambi was written in 1923, translated into English in 1928, retranslated around 2002. And but back when it was translated in English in 1928, it was it was a book of the month club hit. So so it was a very popular book. And then, as we talked about in 1933, Salton sold the film rights to American film director Sidney Franklin for a thousand dollars. And he later transferred those rights over to the Walt Disney Studio. So but this isn't the Bambi isn't the only film that Walt um they based Bambi wasn't the only film based on a Felix Salton book. Walt actually created two other films. Do you know what those are, Mary Jo? No. On, on Salton's films. You might remember, remember we talked about last week, a lot of the uh, nature filming that they did for um, Bambi inspired Walt to um, move forward with the True Life Adventure series. Mm-hmm. One of the True Life Adventure series is a story about Perry who is, I think he's a squirrel. I've seen it. I don't know if he's a squirrel or a chipmunk. I think he's a squirrel. Well, that was based on a book by Felix Salton, Perry. So, And it's a delightful little film. And all it does is it just tells the story of the life of the squirrel and all that. And, and the challenge. That would be cool. Faces. So, and it's out there. I don't know if it's on Disney Plus, but it's certainly available out there. And then there was another one. The Shaggy Dog, believe it oh or not, gosh. Was, really? was very loosely based on a book called The Hound of Florence by Felix Salton. And I mean very loosely based on it. Uh, the, the transformation of, of the person into a dog through a curse is, is basically the only thing left from the original book. Oh, <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, when I was Shaggy a kid, dog. I loved that that mm-hmm. um movie i think i they must have translated into a to a, a children's book because i remember reading the the story of the shaggy dog but it must have been a disney story oh, right because they yeah. yeah and then and, and then know- watching the movie and i really liked tommy kirk as a kid so mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he was a terrific actor. And mm-hmm. and um, Perry, I remember reading, and I think I even had it in my classroom when I was a teacher in one of my classroom libraries. There was a book on Perry. It was the Disney version based on the film. And so it had, you know, um, it had images from the actual film in the book, and it told the story. So, so yeah, but um, Perry's definitely worth a watch. I know? think so. And it's like Bambi. It talks about some of the harsh realities of living in in the forest as a little as a little tiny animal. I probably asked you already, but did you read the book Bambi? I did, and I'm reading it now. Um, okay, I, I'm rereading it now. I had it as a little boy. It was like one of the scholastic books. Remember, you used to get that little I, little booklet or like newsletter it listed all the books and you could order mm-hmm, them. I remember Bambi, that. Bambi was one of the ones I ordered. And yeah. uh, so I read it when I was probably like nine years old. So yeah, you know, I think little, when I was, yeah, you know, I was a little too young to probably fully appreciate it. 
But yeah, I, I did. My parents signed me up for um, a book club, I think, when I was nine or ten. <laughs> and I got two books a month. And maybe, I, maybe it was just a year, maybe it was two years. But I was a huge uh, reader. And Bambi was one of the books that I read. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's, it's such a good story. It is. It's a very good story. And I can already see why the person who translated it, the 2002 translation, how, um, why he doesn't care for the film. But I also can now appreciate why Walt and his team made some of the changes that they did from the book. So, um, so it's interesting. I just got through, well, I'm on, uh, well, maybe earlier today when I was waiting in line somewhere, I brought the book with me. I just read the little short chapter on the two leaves and I could see why they struggled with this scene. Yeah. When they were um, trying to translate it to animation. And of course, there's still a homage to that scene. You know, there are, you do see two leaves in Bambi that fall to the ground as winter is coming. And that's all part of that longer scene that was planned yeah i think in in today's world it would be almost like a an easter egg to the book right or mm-hmm. where you, you know knowing the backstory of what's going on makes it even more poignant when when you see those two leaves yeah but i could also see why they were uncomfortable with this it it um it, it there's a lot of um religious belief and philosophy discussed. Oh, yeah. And, and, and the chapter is only like three pages. It's probably one of the shortest chapters in the book. So, But the, the leaves don't last very long because winter is coming. <laughs> yeah. So a short chapter. <laughs> so anyway, good. Well, those are both good, uh, good um, history segments today. So. I think so. So anyway, uh, at about this time last week in the show, last week's show, we <laughs> talked about a mutual friend. I need to make yeah. a correction, and I'm not going to go in a lot of detail here because I think it's been removed from the show. But um, for those of you who did hear it, I mentioned a mutual friend of ours who had a relative who played professional ball. I misspoke on her relationship with that relative. It's it's a cousin. And so, and they're not kissing cousins, so don't think that's how I made the mistake. It's it's my poor hearing in a in a loud museum that caused me. Well, to yeah, and I I, I I think you know when when you're meeting up with a bunch of friends, and it was probably kind of quick and everything that it's easy to uh, so, to overlook that. Yeah. So I've made my apologies multiple times <laughs> to her, and um and and don't hit her up for free tickets kids yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah she's, I, I would say she's my disney movie buddy so i know that she would have thought and she has a very infectious laugh i love watching uh the disney movies with her uh-huh. so oh that would be fun yeah now you'd mentioned last week mary joe you were planning on going to disneyland did you did you go this past I, weekend didn't make it. I, I actually, and I'm kind of bummed, but I have a lot going on at home right now. So I actually made uh, two, I have two reservations upcoming. So I'm going to be going a lot. I'm going October 14th and I'm going October 21st. And then I have visitors from another country that I get to share Disneyland with them that I'm very excited about. So I'll be going again in November. Um, but I really want to see it right now during 
the Halloween uh, oh, it's so season. Great. Halloween and yeah. Christmas, best times to go. Oh my gosh, it's just wonderful. And Kelly's already gone, and she told me where um, the Monkey Bride is in the Haunted Mansion. So that's I'm going to beeline over there, the Haunted Mansion, so I can go see the Monkey Bride. I it's my own little find it. Oh, I couldn't find. I did tradition. find it last year. So I'm looking forward to going, and when I go in December, trying to figure out where it is this time. Yeah, I'm not going to see you this time in December, but I'll I'll try to be specific. She said it's right side eye level. So, okay, that's good to know. Yeah, but, so oh, but I'll, I will I'll pay be special I attention. Will, I will be at Disneyland for my birthday again this year, Mary Jo, right after the D23 Expo. So, and I already have my reservations at the Grand Californian for after the after the um, expo for next year. You mean? Days. Yeah, in August. Mm-hmm. Next year. Yeah, I'm not going to make it to the D23 Expo next year. My gosh, I'm, you do, you're not going anything. I'm bummed. <laughs> I have I have somebody who's coming to my house for 20 days, oh, so okay. I won't be able to to do the. I mean, they're cousins, and and they. Unlike us, Europe gets a month off, and so they're coming out, and and he's bringing the the family out for their first time. The son's eleven years old, and and the son has been my little cousin has been saving his money. He's going to be eleven. He's been saving his money since he was four to oh come to the United States. Seriously, he saves all birthday money, any money he gets, and he says this is the trip to go to Los Angeles. So um, oh, it's going to be I- a I know you'll make it special for it. Oh heck yeah! There's lots of <laughs> well, lots of things. If so you come to the park on my birthday. We can celebrate all together. <laughs> I hope that would be so much fun. <laughs> that would be. That would be. So while I was at the Walt Disney Family Museum um, last Saturday to hear Kim Irvine, the oh. creative director in Imagineering at Disneyland, a couple of. Um, uh, a couple of listeners came up and said hello, so thank you for coming up and and, and chatting with me. But how was um, it? It was fantastic, and I will talk about it in a future episode. But I'll leave you with a little bit of a cliffhanger for next week's show, because when I went up, I had a couple of things for her to autograph, and I told her, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, when we hear all these Disneyland announcements, a lot of Disneylanders are disappointed. We never hear anything about Tomorrowland. And she says, well, and I will tell you what she says next week. Oh, dude, I was getting all ready to listen, Michael, darn you. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, I'm going with the theme of next week's show. So, um, Cliffhangers? Anyway. So this is a cliffhanger. To listen next oh, time. Oh, wow. But, okay. But she did say something interesting. Oh, cool. Well, she always then, does. Oh, she does. But- and then she did mention that um, the, the and I don't know if this has been announced since then, but the Adventureland Treehouse is going to open in next month, mid-month. Oh, nice. Yeah. And she, she been announced anxiously that. waiting for that. Yeah, she said that publicly in the presentation, so I feel I can share that too, so. Anyway, but that that's it. But it, it was interesting. She mainly talked about her mentors that she learned from. And then she did talk about some of the projects she worked on, especially because it involved them as well. And, you know, what she learned from all her mentors and things like that. And then she told some stories about, you know, her mother being Madame Leota and then her, you know, portraying Madame Leota and then her little cameo in Muppets um, Haunted Mansion. Mm. 
and all that. So, so it was, it was fun. It was a terrific talk. So, um, and I got her to sign a couple of my Imagineering books, which was nice. Yeah. Yeah. That was very nice of her. Yeah. Tis the season to watch the uh, Haunted Mansion. So that's right. And I liked Muppets Haunted Mansion. Oh, I, that's, uh, one of my favorite renditions. I, Mm -hmm. the, uh, I watched it not too long ago just because it's so darn funny. And when he does the, um, what is it? Something in a haircut, a uh, shave and a haircut. And then he'll, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And then, or when they go, dun, 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 and he goes, dun, dun. I, I, I mean, I know it's a dumb scene, but it's, it's so funny. And then when we saw Pat Sajak and he told us that he was going to be a bust. So, right. you know, seeing that is, is, uh, you know, it's fun. It is. It's a lot of fun. And and I like the new Haunted Mansion movie. I don't know if I'm in the minority, but I'm definitely – that'll be now on my watch list in October. Yeah, I Dina and I saw it. I liked it also. Mm-hmm. So. Anyway, well, I used several resources for this episode, including the book Walt Disney's Bambi, the story and the film by Ollie Johnston and Frank Thomas, some websites and articles I used, How Bambi Changed Disney's Animation by Milt Milliken, Bambi by John Wills. It was a film essay he wrote. Ten Facts from Walt Disney's Bambi by Jim Fanning for D23. And consider the source, um, Bambi. It was an article on the Walt Disney Family Museum site. To discover the real Bambi, Walt Disney goes to Maine, New England Historical Society. And The Untold Truth of Bambi by Sarah Buttery for Looper. And uh, the why the artist behind Disney's Bambi still influences animators today by Artsy Editorial on their site. And then Bambi, the music of the immortal Disney animated films by, uh, by David uh, Atkins, Jamie Atkins, sorry. So Mary Jo, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Um, our listeners can find, well, your listeners, sir. <laughs> oh, they're um, listening to you too. <laughs> um, they can find me or you all can find me on Facebook under Mary Jo Mulatto Willie or on the, um, Diz Unlimited fan fan uh, post there too. That's moderated by our friends, or on the Diz boards. Mm-hmm. Good. And until next time, you can connect with me at um, at X Twitter at M Bowling One Two One, Facebook on Michael Bowling Dash Connecting with Walt, Instagram Michael Bowling the Diz. You can send me messages at Michael Bowling at DisneyInfo.com. and you can connect with me and Craig and all of our guest hosts on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on a link Craig includes in our episode description. So this is a change. And and poor Craig, he is going back and updating every single show to have all the links in the episode descriptions. Wow. No, because he's not busy enough, right? Oh, no. He has virtually nothing to do. (laughs) So, you know, he's just doing this for fun. So he's doing it for all of us. (laughs) And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. 
So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs>